lawyers will say, oh, yes, you know, we should try these cases in Ukraine, but it'll take decades. Well, must it take decades? Uh, oh, yes, we should try Putin, and uh, that'll be a difficulty, and it'll last you know, a very long time and cost a huge amount of money. Must it? Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Sir Geoffrey Nice, KC, who led the prosecution of Milosevic at the Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Sir Geoffrey talks about the effectiveness of large-scale international legal proceedings and why he changed his mind about the label of genocide. Humanity can change. Bits of humanity can disappear. They can merge by natural processes. But what you must not allow, you could argue, is ever for part of single humanity to bite off and destroy another bit. And that's why genocide is so important. He reflects on the government response to the two tribunals he led on human rights in China. It was depressing to watch because they were simply determined to shut their eyes to what was going on. And it's quite, sometimes they were foolish enough. Uh, there was one minister, I think, who said, our analysis shows us that there's not enough evidence. I said, oh, that's great. Can we have the analysis? <laughs> if, the, if you've done an analysis, let's have a look at it. No answer. We've never seen it. There was none. It was a policy decision not to act against China. I'm Lee Hall, and this is British Thought Leaders. So, Geoffrey Nice, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're most welcome. The, the 1990s, or the end of the 1990s, was quite an optimistic time for these kind of grand international legal proceedings. We had the start of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, as the former Yugoslavia Tribunal, Rwanda, the International Criminal Court was established. And you were heavily involved in, in several of these. Looking back, do you feel these large international legal proceedings have kind of fulfilled the hopes of 25 years ago? First of all, you need to know what the hopes were 25 years ago. Um, and I think it's fairly hard to distill them it's necessary to remember that the post-World War II efforts at international justice had been somewhat limited, Nuremberg, and Nuremberg ended quite swiftly for a number of reasons, including that we all changed partners. The Germans became our friends and the Russians our enemies, and there was the division of the Cold War and Iron Curtain. So whatever the real value and legacy for forward thinking of the Nuremberg trials may have been, <laughs> it got rather suspended at that point. Now, there was, of course, conversation and discussion about a permanent international court. That's been going on for a very long time, and there was odd trials, the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. There was also occasional trials for war crimes elsewhere, particularly in Germany. But it was only the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals that started things off. Now, it started the modern um, processes off. And what was the thinking then? Do you know, I don't know. What I do know is that it's quite possible that both of those tribunals, ad hoc tribunals established by the United Nations, were not necessarily set up as part of some grand scheme of justice, but set up as out of embarrassment and shame because of what the, uh, the um, international community had failed to do. And indeed, so far as the Yugoslav Tribunal is concerned, it was probably set up to fail, not to succeed. And it was never expected to succeed, and many hoped it never would. So that's why you need to consider <laughs> what you know about, or what little you know about, the overall intentions then. The Yugoslav Tribunal eventually got or got going and was in many ways quite successful and uh, it eventually had a large number of trials and spent a huge amount of money, brought in a number of verdicts. Rwanda did roughly the same thing down in Arusha. And so between them, they raised the idea that war criminals should have to face something or people who commit crimes in war or may commit crimes in war should face something. That then is joined by the movement for the International Court, and then you have a, a general rising tide of expectation for international justice to do something. 
Um, what the state of mind of the average citizen around the world was, it's still hard to say. When I went to the Yugoslav Tribunal in 1998, I didn't have to apply for the job. Um, I just heard about it. Nobody was that keen on it, so far as British lawyers were concerned. I wouldn't have got the job if they had been. But it, it was regarded already as, you know, something over there. And it's very hard to, to identify the moment when things perhaps changed. What did change was the general conversation of people everywhere, simply because they heard about these trials and occasional uh, verdicts and judgments, so that people started to talk about, oh, send him to The Hague, although they often got the city wrong, it didn't matter, but the idea was that you should send somebody doing something terrible for trial. And that's as much as I can say about expectation. The lawyers, of course, then did become involved, particularly with the additional um, impetus given by, uh, by well-known trials, such as the Milosevic trial that I prosecuted at the beginning of 2021 and onwards, 2001 and onwards. Um, and so the lawyers became more enthusiastic and more and more lawyers said they wanted to do this work. And that's been the case ever since. Uh, but again, that doesn't tell us very much about uh, expectations and whether expectations have been reached, because that really is much more a matter for the citizen than for the politician or lawyers. And remember, lawyers, of course, principal interest in many cases is how much they can earn out of something, not how much good it does. And I'm afraid that's true for international law. It's just like any other. And I think at that stage, you need to take a very careful and, and uh, quite critical look at what people really want out of international criminal processes. Will you tell me? What do they want? I guess what they want, what they feel is justice. What is justice? Nobody knows. I mean, they do know, but they don't know. And if you, are, if you really keep thinking, and especially if you look at what's happening in Ukraine now, and if you took a group of citizens off the street sat them down and asked them non-leading questions, you probably find that they would say what we really want out of international justice is to stop people doing these things. And if that's the reality, then they've been a failure. There's absolutely no evidence that any of these trials has stopped a subsequent monster leading his state and his army, or her state and her army, into criminal activity. Of course, we don't know if there were other would-be war criminals who were stopped by Nuremberg or by, um, not so much by the Eichmann trial, but by the ICTY, the, the Yugoslav Tribunal. But there's no evidence that anyone has been. Now. Of course, there are other interests apart from the general citizen who now looks at the possibility of a nuclear war and says, crikey, how are we going to stop that? And the other interests are the interests of the victims, the bereaved, um, some, to some extent politicians who would want individual uh, war criminals brought to book, tried and punished by, in order to serve some purposes of um, a retribution, if retribution is an appropriate thing, it probably is. Uh, some purposes of setting history, which I think, despite what the lawyers and judges say, is a proper function of uh, war crimes trials. Um, reconciliation, very unlikely. Deterrence, not necessary. These people aren't going to become repeat offenders. So you've got those objectives that maybe you've met. But I think the underlying big objective of war crimes trials has not been met. And if you look again at the Yugoslav Tribunal, I can't remember how many billion dollars it cost. And it lasted for you know, nearly 30 years. Um, A, the money might have been used differently to different objectives. And B, trials that last that long well, you can justify them in one way, 
but in another way they do harm, or they can do harm, because they don't they don't leave a definite decision on the basis of which countries can move forward. Let me explain that. Amongst the things that Nuremberg did in less than a year with the majority of the leadership, all those who hadn't committed suicide, was to, if you like, rubber stamp or endorse the the moral certainty brought by absolute defeat. There was no doubt that the Germans were the guilty. There was no doubt that the Allies were the innocent. There was no doubt, although it wasn't the subject matter of the trials, the Jews should not have been annihilated. And all those moral certainties were established by the total defeat, but they were endorsed by the war crimes trial. So this chap like me who was brought up just after the war and went to a very good school, had very good parents, went to a very good university and then became a lawyer eventually. Guess what? We never, never, never had to talk about the war. We never did. We weren't taught it at school, we didn't, university, anywhere. Because we were able to look forward and possibly one of the reasons for that was that the accountability process of the Nuremberg trials settled things once for all. And actually for both parties, Germany moved forward as well. We all did. If you contrast that with the Bosnian Muslims um, who were uh, the subject of persecution, attack, murder, and it is said genocide, at the hands of the Bosnian Serbs and the Serbian Serbs between 1991 and 1995, has there been resolution? No. What is every film in Bosnia about, in one way or another? The war. What is every book about, poet about, conversation about the war? Is it recognized by the international community, so they say it every time, the Serbs were to blame and the Muslims were innocent? No, it isn't. What prospects are there for the Bosnian Muslims in Sarajevo, young ones, to go somewhere else? So it's a long answer, but I think it's very important to, to think first what you want out of an accountability process and then to be hard-headed, hard-nosed, I suppose, hard-nosed, whatever, about whether it's delivered it. And I think the answer is it hasn't. And it's very important for us to recognize that now because Ukraine's in this interesting position of being regarded as the blameless party by a significant part of the world, not by any means by all. And it's got nearly, a hundred, it's probably got 100,000 cases already being investigated. <laughs> it can't try them all. We all say it can, but it can't. But what's it going to do by way of its accountability process in order to stop whoever the next monster may be, Xi Jinping, if he turns into a monster, over what he might try to do with Taiwan? But there are other candidates. Um, looking at the, the situation of what happened in Cambodia, up mm. to two million people were killed under the mm. communist uh, Pol Pot regime. We then had the Khmer Rouge leader trials. So they took like 13 years, or 10 years to set up, 13 years of hearings, cost 265 million pounds. And at the end of all that, only three people were convicted. How should we see the, the massive discrepancies between the crimes and the process, and then what feels like quite a small result in the end? Yes, I'm not an expert on the Khmer Rouge uh, and the special, uh, the special chambers, as it was called, I think in Cambodia, but I know enough about it and I know the people involved to know there was, of course, enormous political pressure there. Uh, it wasn't a formal, form, a fully international tribunal, it was a hybrid tribunal, and that gave great scope for the, the by then uh, sitting regime to pressurise the international lawyers who were leading the prosecution to do this or not to do that. And um, uh, 
not knowing enough about it and not knowing enough of the history of the funding and the establishment and so on, I shouldn't be too easily critical. But I think it is possible to say that overall we are, uh, as a world of citizens, failing to see the real problems of slow process and delay in process. I go back to what I said about lawyers being the ones who profit from it. And I've recently started um, telling people when I talk about these things of a slightly <laughs> of, a, uh, of a book by Dickens called Bleak House. Now, the, the novel Bleak House, for your viewers who don't know about it, great novel, absolutely wonderful cast of characters doing all sorts of things over a long period of time. But the thread through the middle of it is um, uh, a legal case called Jarndyce and Jarndyce. And Jarndyce and Jarndyce has a huge amount of money and various people want to get their hands on it. And so as the story develops with good people and bad people and feckless people and so on, working their way through the story, you occasionally go into the court of uh, Chancellor of Chancery and have a bit of a laugh at what's happening. And then at the very end of the story, eventually a document comes to light, I think, and it's clear that after all this argument, yes, yes, this is the right answer. And uh, when it gets to court, the, the correct decision is announced. I think it would have been in favour of one of the um, heroes of the book. And everyone in court laughs because all the money's already gone on lawyers' fees. There's nothing left. So the lawyers in court laugh. So that's quite funny. And of course, what Dickens was demonstrating was a terrible legal system. But what's interesting to me is not, not that. That's a great story and strongly to be recommended. And there's a wonderful BBC series of it and everything else. But you need to go to the records of how the lawyers thought, the real lawyers thought about this, this lesson that was presented to them. And of course, they hated it. They rejected it because they were actually participating in this out-of-date, um, terrible system that didn't do justice, but that fed the lawyers. And by a sort of analogy, you've got to ask yourself the question, are we already in the same sort of situation now with international justice? Lawyers will say, oh, yes, you know, we should try these cases in Ukraine, but it'll take decades. Well, must it take decades? Uh, oh, yes, we should try Putin, and uh, that'll be a difficulty, and it'll last you know, a very long time and cost a huge amount of money. Must it? Of course, there has to be some accountability for the leaders. I absolutely agree with that. And the leadership trial in Nuremberg is one of the most important events because it has clarified for all time the culpability of the Nazi leadership. And the same has to be done with Putin. Is the trial a long one? Not necessarily. Blindingly obvious. And how much evidence you need? Not very much. And, it, and when, right when this started uh, in February of last year, or March, I suppose, when I first may have been asked about it, I said, of course the man's guilty. You don't have to look very far to see repeat attacks on civilian property. And guess what? Putin's got a television. So he can see what we can see. And has he said or done anything to call those troops back for, for, for discipline? Has he done anything to say, oh, I never meant that? Of course he hasn't. Why not? Because they were doing what he wanted. And that's enough. And so, although lawyers will no doubt, if there's ever a trial about Putin, be able to spend years on it and earn very large sums of money, the public might not want that. They might want things to be much simpler. And I think they should be. Going back to the, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, the international lawyers wanted to prosecute other Khmer Rouge officials and the Cambodian judges blocked them. They said too many people in society were either involved in the crimes or victims of the crimes. Is this a stumbling block for prosecuting crimes committed under communist regimes rather than top-down dictatorships because people get swept up in the revolution? Again, I think... Um Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s is a really important place to start and a, and, a, and a history of which everyone should be much better informed than they are. If you look at uh, what happened in Nazi Germany, okay, 
the leaders were terribly guilty and the next level down were terribly guilty. And then when you had people acting uh, in particularly cruel ways at any level in the uh, ladder of authority, the chain of authority, they are specially culpable uh, for what they did with children and everything, horrible things. But actually, if you look at the society as a whole, they're all culpable, nearly all culpable. Why do you say that? Well, of course, there were those who actively resisted and often lost their lives as a result. But a lot of the people did little more than be bystanders, whether it was at Kristallnacht or whether it was when they were living near to an, uh, an asylum where they would see the buses coming in every day full and then leaving empty and the smoke of the crematorium behind hand. So they knew what was going on. And you have to ask, I think, we have to ask ourselves as citizens facing um, the possibility of more bad or even monstrous leaders, what's the duty of anyone in a society, especially if it happens to have an element of democracy about it, but in any society, if these things happen. Is it enough for us to say oh, it would be too frightening for me to be involved and do nothing? Was it all right for people who watched the shops being smashed at Kristallnacht, knowing perfectly well what was the underlying objective? And that then percolates right the way up from the bystander to the slightly involved, to the slightly more involved, to the more involved, and so on and so forth. And Probably, but I'm not sure about this, probably it's quite important for us to recognize that <coughs> bad people commit really bad things, the, the leaders, only with the compliance endorsement and sometimes the election by their citizens. And that does indeed make it quite difficult to distinguish who you should prosecute and who you should let go. So far as I'm concerned, and without having somebody to challenge me on it, I think it is absolutely critical that the, the real leadership, military political leadership in, in these uh, wars, events, whatever they might be, in internal persecutions as in Iran or... Um, North Korea, if one were ever to get there, or in Xinjiang or somewhere else, very important, critical, that the leadership are tried at an early stage and with a definitive result. Who else needs to be tried is much harder. Um, obviously, people who do outrageous, not outrageous, who do truly wicked things, wherever they are in the ladder of responsibility, uh, sh should be tried. No doubt about that. But looking at the Ukraine uh, conflict, what's the position of the young recruit drawn from northeast Russia? I think, they, what are they called in Ukraine? They're called, something like they're called the Eastern soldiers, because they are, of course, Eastern in appearance. He knows nothing of Europe nothing of politics, nothing of the language of the Ukraine or the territory of Ukraine, he's brought down. And he's told to do this. And this is a criminal act. How criminal is he? It's a very difficult question, I think. Uh, and even if you find that as a matter of international law, he's in some way is a criminal because he does something as he was instructed to do, is it nevertheless politically wise and pragmatically sensible to try and prosecute him? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think the question has to be asked. And then there's another little bit to the, an answer to your question about people at low levels. We know that, it, so far as Nazi Germany was concerned, once the Allies' trials, which didn't last very long, were finished, East Germany and West Germany carried on trying people, and occasionally you would have trials in other countries such as our own for people who fell into our jurisdiction. And quite recently, a woman, was she 100 or 98 or 99? A woman was tried, and she'd been, in a sense, 
little more than a clerk, but she was a clerk, and therefore she was an in, a knowing part of the process. She was tried and convicted. And if I'm asked that, was it appropriate that she should be tried? I'm afraid to say I think it was appropriate. And I find that quite hard to square with my own other proposition that trying to try everyone is both impossible and maybe unwise. But in that particular case, there she was, clear case. Well, it does serve a purpose. It serves a purpose for individuals. These are very confusing waters. You were the, you had two tribunals that involved the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And the first was the China Tribunal. Could you tell us um, what the tribunal focused on and what it found? Well, you need to, I need to say quite a lot about those tribunals if I'm to speak about them at all and what function they're serving. And we go back to the Vietnam War where there was no um, formal determination of any kind and a tribunal was set up by uh, a group of people to look at America and only America. And the group of people who set it up were completely predetermined in their views. They were left-leaning socialists and communists, and, but also high intellectuals like Lord Russell, the philosopher, and Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, and a whole gang of other, not gang, a whole collection of other left-leaning people. But they set up a People's Tribunal saying that where these things aren't dealt with by formal processes, then an informal process by citizens can fill the gap in knowledge. And I think that's the best way to approach the, the work of the two tribunals I chaired, although I got there by being involved in two other tribunals in different capacities, which taught me a great deal. The first one was indeed about Iran. The second one was about the earlier incident involving Indonesia. And by the time I'd gone through those two tribunals, I had a view of how people's tribunals might work in certain circumstances. They are no panacea. And so on what did they focus? They, they are not self-starting. Uh, a group of citizens should not, in my view, look around the world for a, for a gap in knowledge and say, oh, we'll go and fill that. It doesn't work for a whole range of reasons. If there's a gap of knowledge that needs to be filled, then you need someone to drive that, and that person or body needs to have an interest. So that in the case of the China Tribunal, as you will know, uh, its initial focus of attention was the forced organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners in China, but also of other prisoners of conscience or other prisoners. And the drive for that was ETAC. And so they s said, well, here's a problem. This knowledge is not getting through. They didn't, it's not the terms they use, but can you help us with the tribunal? Which the answer is, yes, we can. But you must understand we're not particularly concerned about the Falun Gong, as opposed to, for example, Christians in um, Nigeria, wherever they might be being persecuted, or Ethiopians, or anybody else. We are, our concern is that here's something that national or international bodies should have dealt with in a question and answer basis in order to move forward. It's not being done, so we'll do that. So our interest was, is, and still is in asking and answering an unasked and unanswered question. And, and that worked with both the tribunals I chaired extremely well, because in each case we had bodies that commissioned us, or individual bodies that commissioned us, that were of integrity. They understood that we were not partisan, we were not interested in them as individuals. I don't mean that in quite that way, but you know what I mean. We were only interested in doing, and that we might produce a conclusion they wouldn't like, uh, because we were going to be truly independent. And so what happened in both tribunals was we were asked a question by the commissioning body, and we said, fine, we will answer that question. Now, 
the commissioning body remains in, has to remain engaged in each case because you've got to get evidence. And not all of the evidence will come from the commissioning body, but it's quite likely to. And you've got to assess the evidence, make sure that it is, so far as you possibly can, free of any form of uh, corruption and all that sort of stuff. And you have to apply rules of fairness to the procedure and you have to apply the law in the strictest possible way, not for a bunch of citizens to expand the law. And that actually, I think, in both those uh, tribunals, worked very well. We were helped very much by having, in each case, counsel to the tribunal, Hamid Sabi, who ensured that things ran fairly. He himself and his team of counsel kept separate from us, and all of us kept separate from uh, the commissioning body. We might meet in the Uyghur Tribunal, for example, we met all the time, or very regularly, it was in lockdown, so we ha have to have quite a lot of regular meetings to get things. But there was never any question of over-engagement or over-familiarity. We remained like a jury, and that's quite a good analogy to use. One of my most enduring images is of delivering the judgment of the Uyghur Tribunal on the 9th of December 2021, just down the road in Church House. And the, the judgment took two and a quarter hours to read, didn't stop. People were standing in front of me. And right in front of me were the president of the World Uyghur Congress, the body that had commissioned us, and his sort of chief of staff, number two. And they were looking at me, I was looking at them when I wasn't reading. And I think, I don't want to be over picturesque about it, I think they were actually holding hands at one time. And they clearly were anxious beyond belief because they had no idea what the result was going to be. We had maintained our complete independence right to the end, and they didn't know. Nobody knew until I pronounced it in court. And what was interesting, and when the matter was first presented to me by Ben Rogers, and I said, well, I can't really do very much, but have you thought about a people's tribunal? What concerned them, and what I could see was a matter of concern, was that they already had a very large amount of extremely powerful material proving what it was that they might eventually, when they asked us, want us to look at. And this material included works by David Matas and um, David Kilgore, the, the Canadian Secretary of State, and then works by Ethan Gutman. So you had three different disciplines, lawyer, politician, journalist, They'd all come together and they'd got all this stuff. They'd been having hearings in America since 2000, and in, in Congressional Committee, I think, in 2001, with evidence being given. But they could never get it through. And if you look at uh, the China Tribunal judgment, there's a passage where we set out the reaction down the road here in Westminster of uh, government spokesmen Whenever people like David Alter, who I think you've spoken to, but also others, Fiona Bruce and um, Shannon and all sorts of other MPs, ask difficult questions, why aren't you doing something about this? They would always say something, I summarize it, like, oh, the evidence isn't good enough. <laughs> isn't quite there. I mean, they, they would show pretend sympathy, but they wouldn't actually do anything. Uh, it, it it was depressing to watch because they were simply determined to shut their eyes to what was going on. And it was quite, sometimes they were foolish enough. Uh, there was one minister, I think, who said, our analysis shows us that there's not enough evidence. I said, oh, that's great. Can we have the analysis? <laughs> if, the, if you've done an analysis, let's have a look at it. No answer. We've never seen it. There was none. It was a policy decision not to act against China. And at this time, we were all full on for China as a, as a government and nation. Um, 
uh, it was a political decision not to not to do this. And so you've got lots of evidence, completely uh, uh, unimpeachable. Nothing wrong with it. Anyway, men of men and women of integrity, but government's opposed to it. And so we produced our judgment. Now, at that time in 2019, uh, we were still, as a nation, in love with China, and therefore the politicians in Moldova. It achieved a certain amount of publicity, but not very much. And you might have thought that it would have vanished. In fact, it hasn't vanished. And it's become much more powerful slowly than we might have expected. Part of the reason for that is because, yes, the general approach to China has turned from one of complete embrace to one of some hostility on large parts of the Western world. But also because the findings made about forced organ harvesting of the Falun Gong and others, uh, including the Uyghurs, um, is not just about the persecution of a minority group, although it is that. And it may be the successful, in large part successful, persecution of a minority group. It's also about an identifiable criminal practice of the worst possible kind. And so that part of our finding, that it happened, and how it happened roughly, has been applied by medical bodies around the world, has led to uh, changes in the law, I think, in America and possibly also here. And so the People's Tribunal's focus was Falun Gong in the medical practice or malpractice or criminal practice, and it has had a steadily growing, if, or it has a steady effect, possibly becoming larger than might have been thought, and continuing. And they continue to get more evidence of the same. And uh, for it to stand in the way of surgeons and medical experts from China being respected around the world, being able to publish their journals around the world without proof of where the body parts came from, all that sort of stuff, that's pretty powerful stuff. And I think greatly to the credit of the tribunal and Hamid Sabi and his team and everyone who contributed to you, and most of all, of course, to ETAC, because they commissioned us, provided a lot of the evidence, did a lot of the hard work, I think found most of the money, I can't remember. The money's only required for things like hire of the hall, the rest of us work for free. And when you look at the Uyghur tribunal, something's much more um, problematic because although you could say for the China tribunal, what we want to do is to stop this practice. Now, whether it's stopped or not is very uncertain. And we know that Ethan Goodman's research allows for the practice to have been continuing and indeed getting worse, now being focused heavily on the Uyghurs. But we don't know whether what he described as work in progress to us in the, in the second tribunal uh, will be eventually a firm conclusion that he might ask somebody else to adopt. When you come to the Uyghurs, the problem is much more difficult because the real objective of the Uyghurs is independence for East Pakistan. And uh, of course, they want along the way to stop the camps, to stop the torture, to stop the killing, to stop the interference with births, and all of that. But that's part of a, a program of persecution which is bitty, lots of bits to it, all of which do need looking at. But their real objective is this, independent East Pakistan. And if you contrast that with stop ripping organs out of people by killing them and selling them on the open market, this one, the China Tribunal's core objective, is much easier for the international community to gather around and to reflect in Act of Parliament or regulations of medical bodies. This one, much, much harder, because there are very few examples, almost none that I can think of, but I've probably forgotten some, where 
foreign citizens, overseas, different citizens, us for these purposes, will put our backs behind um, a separatist movement. It's possibly happened with the Tamil Tigers. There was no necessarily vested interest in the Tamil Tigers of Sri Lanka, but I seem to remember that it attracted a certain amount of support simply for the political movement. That's not normally what other countries do. Other countries, they've got enough on their own plates. They aren't going to look at somebody else's political problem. But if you give them a particular problem, a particular wickedness, ripping out people's organs, then you may make some headway. And it's interesting that in the Uyghur case, all the hard work, not all, most of the hard work internationally has been put in to an identifiable crime, nay, the crime of forced slave labor. And that is, of course, having some effect, and it's built on the suffering of the Uyghurs, but it's already detached from them, and it's forced labor and slave labor generally, and whether we should have uh, solar panels and all that sort of thing. Uh, and their real objective is not being supported. And that's troubling because their real objective, okay, it's an independent East Pakistan, but their real objective is maintaining their existence as a separate ethnicity. And again, that's not something that you go and speak about it along the road here in Westminster or in leafy Beckenham or um, over in Paris. It's going to attract crowds on the street. They don't see that core though it is to the criminality of modern war and modern persecution sometimes, they don't see that as something to stand up for. They'll stand up for forced organ harvesting. They will probably stand up for slave labour, but not for these other issues. I've had several guests on the show talking about the difficulties of getting the uh, what the Chinese regime is doing classified as genocide. Ibrahim Mahmoud, uh, David Mattis, uh, Lord Alton as well. And how important is this designation of genocide in this context? Um, I used to think it was a bit of a nuisance, that, that genocide, because it took a lot of time to prove in, say, things like the Milosevic case, it allowed for the process to be slowed down in a plethora of arguments and so on. So you could easily argue, and I think I used to, that Frankly, it would have been better not to have had it in the indictment and to have just used crimes against humanity and we would have reached the same effective conclusion with a different label. But I've changed my mind since. Um, and I think largely through, or finally through consideration of the Uyghur problem, uh, genocide doesn't arrive in respect to the Falun Gong for a whole range of reasons. Um, not a qualifying, well, maybe a qualifying group, but there were a whole range of reasons why it didn't arise, not least because the the purpose of doing what was done to Falun Gong and others was part commercial. But the Uyghurs is much more, uh, for me, I've found it much more interesting and instructive and, uh, and troubling, really. And I've come to the conclusion that actually we do need to think much harder about genocide than we do. And we need to understand why the Genocide Convention came into being. To get to those points, you have to recognize that the word genocide is used in different ways by the citizen in the street. No complaint about that. She or he thinks it's the worst of all crimes. It's mass killing, something like that. And that's it. And they want to attach the label to their own suffering if they're victims. The lawyers and others who are interested will apply the technical definition. And I'm quite sure we should be much better informed uh, about how the Genocide Convention came to be, what it means, and what that does. And we should try and encourage a better understanding more broadly in the population, or in the population of educated citizens, I suppose, um, and what it means, because it's not that easy. And the best way to explain why it's not that easy is to consider an ordinary crime, theft, murder, assault, whatever you like. An ordinary crime looks at a, um, a, a, a kind of action. 
one person having the property of another person. Now that can happen. The universe of activities that lead to this person's property landing up in this person's hands is enormous. But the only ones that are theft are those whereby the property was appropriated, taken, with the intention to keep it. So if it falls into your possession by mistake, if it goes through a second-hand dealer and you buy it without knowing of the... and so on and so forth. Thousands of ways. Killing someone. There are various ways in which A can kill B. It only becomes murder if, if it's done with an intention to kill or cause really, really serious bodily harm. So in each kind of crime you have a big set of possible acts and you extract from them those that are criminal because they're accompanied by a criminal intent. Genocide is not that. Uh, because genocide doesn't put the act first and then limit it by the state of mind. It puts the state of mind first and then identifies, not because you can find them with a microscope, but because there's some kind of psychological or psychiatric uh, element in a human being, but identifies by choice of the drafters of the Genocide Convention, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five ways in which genocide can be convicted, committed. Which also means there are a whole lot of other ways in which it can't be committed. So the genocidal intention is critical, and that is the intention to destroy a group in whole or in part. And groups defined and so on. But that's it. Intention to destroy a group. And then the five methods that are identified um, include that which the man in the street most regularly thinks, killing in large numbers, but it includes other things that are very, very different. One is harming people, one is circumstances of life, and then there are two others, interference with birth and transferring of children. And what's, without going back to the drafting of the convention, although it's dealt with in some detail in the Uyghur Tribunal Judgment, if you, if you look at what they were concerned about, the draft people of that convention, in the late 40s and early 50s, building on the work that Raphael Lemkin had done. They were concerned for the future, not for the past. Yes, you allow for punishing genocidal criminals. Their concern was to stop one bit of humanity destroying another bit of humanity by ways that they clearly thought were the most rightly needing of the tag of a crime. And so, if you look at a, a criminal activity or activity that you believe to be criminal, as in the case of the Uyghurs, and you say, is this shown to be, proved to be genocidal? It is extremely important for the very reason I said earlier when I was talking in more general terms about their desire for an independent East Pakistan and to avoid the destruction of their own ethnicity. If there is evidence sufficient to make a finding or findings of genocide, then you are finding that a segment of humanity, in this case bits of the PRC, is concerned to extinguish, to eliminate, to cut out, to destroy another part of humanity. And it is actually very important to look for that. And if you find it, if governments find it, under Article 1 of the Convention, they are obliged to act immediately to do something about it. And guess what? Since the Convention was ratified, we ratified it, what, 20 years after it came into force? America and Russia even later, I think. Other countries earlier. Has any country ever said, we are doing this because of our duty under Article 1 of the Convention? None. Ever because it is politically unappealing in the extreme for countries to be driven by this duty to act in a way. So we don't even know what countries are supposed to do if they find genocide committed by um, the PRC or parts of the PRC against the Uyghurs. And we found in the Uyghur Tribunal Judgment just the one 
of the five parts that are interfering with birth. M maybe with more evidence, other categories could be considered. And we make explicit in the judgment that our judgment, because it's conservative, cautious, conservative in a general sense, cautious, subject to the strictest conditions for finding fact and law, we make it clear that could be a launch pad for others to work on. Maybe they will. But it is very important. And uh, I, I now have moved from the position of thinking it's a bit of a nuisance, this, um, <laughs> this uh, particular crime, because it, it, you know, it, it complicates trials like the trial of Milosevic. I'm now much more convinced that it's critical that we focus on it and that we focus on it on the way intended insofar as you can discern a single intent from a drafting committee that, of course, has all sorts of different things in mind in the 1940s and 50s, drafted by people who'd lived through not one, mostly two world wars, and who knew what humans could do to humans. And the concept of humanity being single is something that sh should appeal to probably all, relig all religions, but also to people with no religion. Humanity can change. Bits of humanity can disappear. They can merge by natural processes. But what you must not allow, you could argue, is ever for part of single humanity to bite off and destroy another pit. And that's why genocide is so important. So Jeffrey Nice, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. No, not at all. I hope that's helpful.